Uh, join me in Matthew 28, if you would, as the kids are being dismissed. Matthew 28. Good to see you this morning. And those of you that are uh, not able to be with us this morning, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a few of, of you. Uh, there, some of you watch us each week. Praise the Lord for that online. Some of you are used to being here, and you're not able to be here this morning. Uh, praise the Lord for technology, even when the keyboard goes out, right? <laughs> Good old faithful physical piano that's not plugged into anything. That's awesome. All right, Matthew 28. Hey, this is the last chapter. We've been in this for only three years and seven months. And we're coming down the home stretch. If I had to guess, I would say we're going to have uh, four more messages if I had to guess. I will go ahead and tell you. Uh, so next week we'll be back in Matthew 28. Uh, in two weeks from right now, Brother Brian Connard and Miss Martha will be with us. He'll be preaching. Uh, they've been in Africa for over two years, and they are missionaries that we support, and I'm really excited. I was able to uh, talk with him several times, but see him face-to-face about two or three weeks ago, and uh, he just has an energy, and, and he loves the Lord, and um, they've given their lives uh, to take the gospel. And I will go ahead and tell you that will flow very nicely into the following two weeks that will come after that. So make plans to be here on the 21st and next week too. Next week's important also, but definitely be here on the 21st. All right, Matthew 28, we're going to try to cover, uh, at least go over the first 10 verses, not able to exhaust everything in there that would take a lifetime really uh, to cover this. And we're going to try to do it in one week. So if you were with us last week or not, the previous 10 verses as we ended chapter 27, we kind of titled that message, Preparing for a Miracle. That was preparing for a miracle. We talked how God uses miracles sovereignly, and God also uses this thing called providence. And actually, providence is even more complex than miracles. We love miracles. But last week's passage was how the Lord was moving in certain people's hearts to bring about the circumstances in which it would be obvious that what we're talking about this week is a miracle. So the last week had a bit of an apologetics style, uh, defending our faith by using historical and archaeological and re- those types of proofs and reason and blending it together with the truth of God to show why we believe what we believe. Haven't studied it fully yet and really haven't even started in verses 11 to 15, but I, I would think we're going to get back in that vein again a little bit next week. But this week, we want to talk about the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's the scene from last week. Jesus has died on the cross. He died. He really died. He was dead long before the other two guys died because he gave up his spirit. He decided when he would die. They couldn't do that. But just to make sure, a Roman soldier, according to John chapter 19, a Roman soldier thrust a spear into his side, into the heart area, and outflowed blood and what John called water. Blood and water, showing that he was already dead. It didn't spurt, it just kind of oozed out. He was already dead. So Jesus has died. God providentially, sovereignly put it on a man's heart named Joseph, who was a member of the 71-member Sanhedrin. He was a prominent member. The difference was he didn't agree with them about Jesus. In fact, he was a secret disciple of Christ, but he was wealthy. And he took courage. He was fearful of the Jews, and that's why he was a secret disciple, but he took courage. And after Jesus died around 3 p.m., so between that time and 6 p.m., that would be what they called evening, this man, Joseph of Arimathea, went to the Roman governor, Pilate, and asked, can I have the body of Christ? God wanted that, and that was going to be a fulfillment of 
one of the major prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus would be buried in the tomb of a rich man. Joseph was a rich man. He's going to offer and bury Jesus in his tomb. So Joseph asked for the body, gets it. A man named Nicodemus, who's also wealthy, together they ended up washing the body of the Lord, straightening the body of the Lord. And according to archaeology and historical findings, what the Jews of that time would do was use linen strips about a foot wide, and they would begin at the armpit, and they would just wrap it around the body, and then the arms down, and then they would wrap the body again that way, placing spices of a gummy consistency in between the folds, and that served two purposes. One, it was a preservative for the body for as long as possible. They did not embalm, so a stench is going to be coming in just a few days. So the spices would help keep that down, but it would also solidify these wrappings into a hard covering, almost we could use the word a cocoon-looking thing. And so this has been done to the Lord, and then Joseph and Nicodemus put the Lord's body in Joseph's tomb, which was near where the cross was. And then they rolled a large stone. Again, history tells us that a wealthy tomb like that would have a large disc-shaped rock that would ride and slide and roll into a slot in front of the tomb, covering the tomb, in essence, to keep animals and thieves out. That was, third, that was Friday. Saturday, so again, there was a couple of women, a few women, that were sitting watching this. They had watched Jesus die. They watched the burial, and then they went home for the Sabbath day, which started Friday evening at 6. But on Saturday itself, some Jews remembered that Jesus had promised and prophesied that he was going to rise again on the third day. They're not worried about Jesus rising again, but they don't want the disciples to steal the body and then go out and claim that he had risen again, thus making this supposed prophecy of Christ come true. So they also go to the Roman governor, Pilate, and ask, can we have some guards put outside the tomb to make sure that they don't come steal the body? We kind of think they may be up to that. Well, Pilate, again, in a, in a giving mood, again, providentially led by God, gives them Roman guards to go guard the tomb. Not only that, now there's... Jesus, dead, wrapped inside the tomb. There's a stone over it, and there's a guard outside, but they put a cord in front of that stone and set it in wax on either side, and then kind of some kind of emblem in the wax where if it was disturbed at all, if that stone is moved, they will know. And so the Roman soldier's guard is job is to guard it and not let anything happen. The Jews would be checking behind and checking those seals to make sure that they were not being bribed or in on it in any way. So it seems like a perfect plan. Kind of like the old, again, tamper-proof medicine. If you ever get medicine nowadays and you pop the top and it has one of those little tamper-proof things, but it's kind of flapping around and covered with, with, uh, with scotch tape, okay, you don't need to take that medicine. Somebody's messed with it. They've done their best to make sure no one can tamper with this tomb of Christ, and he's inside. Well, that was Saturday. Now let's look at verse 1 of chapter 28. Here we go. We'll start in chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, the Sabbath's on Saturday, after that, toward the dawn, some of the other gospels tell us it was even before dark when these ladies left. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, guess what? Today is the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene, oh, here she is again, and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So off they go. They, it, it's dark when they leave, and they're going to arrive right at sunup, right at dawn. And so they're going to, what Matthew says, see the tomb. They actually have more in their heart than that, but they're definitely going to see the tomb. Verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Lots of things are happening as these women approach the tomb. There was a great, not an earthquake, a great earthquake. 
four. Can I catch that word? I'm not going to revisit this a lot. We're just hitting a lot as we go. The word four, in my mind, seems to attach the earthquake somewhere to this coming of, the na- of an angel. Behold, there was a great earthquake. Again, it's just dawn. There was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. He rolls the stone. He's sitting on it. And there's an earthquake has happened before that or simultaneously with his arrival. A little bit of what he looked like, some generic things. But again, angels can appear in different ways. But this one is still, he's allowed to appear in some of the heavenly glory that he would have if he were not on earth. Because verse 3, his appearance, the angel's appearance was like lightning. And apparently that's talking about what we would call a facial area. It's just bright. It's emanating. His appearance was like lightning. And his clothing, white as snow. So remember who's outside the tomb. And here comes this angel. There's this earthquake. Well, here's the effect. Verse 4. And for fear of him, fear of him, the angel, the guards, these Roman soldiers, trembled. Like literally shaking. You've been cold before and shaking. And you've been afraid perhaps. And it put a shiver through. These men are trembling. For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. It almost killed them as it were. They are like dead men because they saw this angel. But the angel said to the women. The word but means there's a distinction between these two groups. Verse 4 is the guards. Verse 5 is the women. And now the angel's going to talk for three verses. And he's got certain things. He had two jobs. Roll the stone away and give some instructions. Verse 5. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know. Do not be afraid. Why? For I know. The angel saying, I know some things. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. The last phrase of verse 5 and verse 6, along with verse 9, catch it again. The last phrase of verse 5 with verse 6 and verse 9, that's the key piece of information throughout this text. Here we go again, verse 5. Do not be afraid, the angel told the women. For I know that you seek Jesus was crucified. You seek Jesus who was crucified. Number one, verse six. I don't know how quickly this angel said this, but if there was any delay at the first part of this verse six and the second part of it, how devastating this would be to these women. Here it is again. Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. What? He's not here. For he has risen. As he said. And the other gospels tell us when the angel said, he's risen. As he said, then they remembered. Verse 6 continues. Come, see the place where he lay. Where the Lord lay is the idea. Come. He actually invites them to go inspect the tomb. The other gospels tell us these women do inspect the tomb. Verse 7. Angel still talking. Giving instructions. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you. This is the message for the, for the disciples. Go tell them he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And let me find it. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So the angel says... Come check out the tomb. Now go tell his disciples he's risen and that they need to go to Galilee. He's going to meet them there. See, I've told you. I've done my job, the angel says. 
Verse 8, very simple. Verse 8, super simple. Given instructions, they obeyed. So they departed quickly from the tomb with a blend. Notice, fear and great joy. Why is there still fear? If you knew all the things, if you really thought about what they've gone through, fear is being dispelled, but it's still kind of like having to be processed out. Verse 8, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. So great joy is now conquering the fear, but both are there momentarily. And they ran to tell his disciples. And then verse 9, I told you this was the other big piece of information. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. The word greetings there has been uh, translated as all hail or hello or rejoice. Here we have Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet. Obviously, they're getting down. They took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's notice three things this morning, if you would. Number one, so these, first, these are simple points, and we're going to try to keep it simple this morning, just very straightforward. You say, Jeff, we already know these things. Well, let's talk about them from the text. Why do we know these things? Number one, Jesus' tomb is empty. I want to impress that thought. Say, I already kind of knew it. Well, let's think about it some this morning. Jesus' tomb, Jesus really died. He was really buried. He was put in a tomb of Joseph. But that tomb is now empty. I've not been to Jerusalem. Some of you have. Apparently, there are two leading places, and one is predominant over the other where they think the Lord's body was was laid. Can't be 100% sure on either one. But here's the point. He's in neither one of those places. His body is not there. And they would be able to identify that body by markings from a crucifixion. He's not there. No one in the day of Christ made the argument, no, he's still in the tomb. Really? Go get his body then. They, that was not their argument. We know what their argument will be next week. They're going to say the disciples stole the body. They never said, well, he's still in there. No, he's not in the tomb. This is verifiable few things I want to pull in at this point. We're looking now, we're studying for a moment, verses 1 through the first part of verse 6. And here, by the way, guys, normally uh, when we went through the crucifixion, I pulled in, we went and chased down a lot of things in all the other Gospels. We're not going to do that with the resurrection because it would take us a month to really unpack all the various details and to try to get an accurate timeline of this followed by this. Matthew gives a condensed version, and so you would need to go... Read the other gospel accounts to find out a fuller picture. So we're going to try to kind of stick to Matthew with one exception today. But I want you to get this. The other gospels give us several pieces of information I want to share. Number one, just for information, there were two angels. There were two angels, not just one. Matthew focuses on the one. And there's not just two women. There's actually four women. We have Mary Magdalene, this other woman named Mary. We have a woman named Salome and a woman named Joanna. And there may have been more. We know of at least four. So real simple. You say, well, that's a contradiction. No, if there's four women and two angels, then surely there was one angel and two women, right? Does that make sense? If there's four, then there was two. And if there was two angels, there was one. Matthew focuses on certain ones among that. So here's our question. Why are these four ladies, if not more, why are they heading to the tomb of Jesus so early in the morning? 
Matthew writes to see the tomb, but it is more than that. The other gospels, again, tell us that on Friday evening before the Sabbath began, they went and bought spices. They've watched Jesus be buried. They know that they have, they have wrapped Jesus' body in spices, but now they're coming back the next day after the Sabbath, and they've bought more spices that their plan is to apply it to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So right off the bat, if you're thinking with me, we know that some people are wrong when they try to say, these women believed that Jesus was going to rise again and they were coming for the resurrection. No, they were not. They brought spices to apply to his dead body thinking he was going to stay dead. The disciples have not thought about a resurrection. These women have not thought about a resurrection. That's not their purpose. They're only bringing spices to apply to the body of Christ. As they're approaching... I'm not going to reread the text, but I want to offer to you. Write these down. Four things. Put yourselves in their shoes. It's just starting to get daylight. Four things happened that absolutely shocked their system. And I kind of thought through, boy, if, if we could interview these women and they were to say, yes, that was shocking, that was shocking, and that and that, how would they rank the four? I'll maybe offer my opinion if I remember to do it. Write this down. Four things absolutely shocked these ladies. Number one, there was a great earthquake. There was a great earthquake. This is the second earthquake in the last 38 or 39 hours in Jerusalem. 3 p.m. at the death of Christ, there was an earthquake. Here it is again, 5 or 6 a.m. There's another earthquake accompanied with the resurrection of the Lord. By the way, I'm just curious. Has anybody in here, would you raise your hand if you've ever been in like a verifiable, you recognized you were in an earthquake? Who here has been in that? Raise your hand. Kind of like, looks like about a dozen of you, maybe 15. That means the rest, I've never been in an earthquake. If I were in a verifiable, like a great earthquake, probably going to rattle my cage a little bit. That got these ladies' attention. Second thing, I'm going to offer this to you. It's not in the text, but watch this. Some of the other gospels tell us that when the ladies went home for the Sabbath, they stayed home on the Sabbath. So I'm going to contend. The second thing that would have shocked them was seeing the Roman guard. Seeing the Roman soldiers, seeing the Roman guard, that gets there. They're, they're probably thinking, what are they doing here? When did they get here? They must, oh yeah, that all happened Saturday when you were at home. And so if none of the disciples came to the tomb on, on the Sabbath day, then they wouldn't have known. And so this gets their attention as well. Those are definite, surprising, shocking things. But the next two absolutely would really throw them out of their frame. Number three would be... The realization that the stone of Christ's tomb has been rolled back. Put yourself in these ladies' mind. They're looking, and I don't know which one saw it first, but in my mind, I'm imagining. What? The Lord's tomb is open. What? Yes. Why? What are they doing here? Have they, and they're, they're just all in turmoil. And if that's not enough, they see an angel whose appearance is like lightning and his clothing is like white as snow. And so they're blown away by that. They're just overwhelmed. That's why we find in verse 8 that they're still having this blend of fear and great joy. I don't know how I would rank them if I were them. I, I would assume the soldiers, that's surprising. Earthquake was unrattling. The tomb being open and this angel altogether is a very frightening thing to them. Again, as I said a while ago, the Bible, because of the word force, seems to connect two things. The arrival of this angel along with this earthquake. And so look at verse 2 quickly. Behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
most of you know what you're about to write. Some of you have already filled in the blank, I dare say. I'm not going to have you raise your hand. That's fine. I do the same thing, by the way, when I listen to preachers. I try to guess what the blanks are. I try to make them tricky. I try to leave keywords out, and I try to mess with the syntax if I can to keep you guessing. Most of you have already figured this one out, but somebody hasn't. Here's why. Here's what I want, to put on. I want you to put down. If you ever see a picture or a drawing or an animation of the tomb of the Lord on Resurrection Sunday and you see an angel with his wings moving it, and you see this, the Lord glowing coming out of the tomb, okay, that is sending a total wrong message. I'll promise you this is not what happened. The Lord did not come back to life inside the dark tomb and escape from his linen clothing, the cocoon, and run into a rock wall known as the, the covering, this giant stone, large stone, that four women on their way to the tomb are wondering, who's going to move the stone? By the way, the, the Roman soldiers would not have let these ladies move the stone, I guarantee you, because they would have been like, nope, I'm not going to. It's Passover week. People aren't just hanging out at tombs. That would de defile them for the Passover week. They would be relying, would you guys mind moving it? Nope, we can't. We're bound by duty. No one gets in there until after the third day. Maybe you want to come back tomorrow. We might let you in. So they're wondering, can we get it? And then they arrive, and the, and the stone's already rolled back. Why is the stone rolled back? Well, I promise you, Jesus isn't on the inside praying to the Father, Lord, thank you. It's nice to be back alive again, but could you please maybe send an angel to, to move the stone? So let's write this down. The angel did not move the stone to let Jesus out, as you'll see sometimes in drawings. No, he removes the stone so that these women can go in. And so that Peter and John and any of the other disciples that needed to, they can go in and inspect the tomb. Why? Jesus is gone. Jesus is gone from the tomb before the angel ever arrives. He's not reliant on the angel opening. That Jesus doesn't need the tomb open. He's gone. Verse 4. With my marker. Verse number four. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. What does that mean? I would dare say that someone in this room has had a point in your life, and you'll remember it, where you were so afraid. It could be explainable, or it may have been something unexplainable. It may have been a feeling that you had. But you have... Probably someone, I've, I don't think I've been there, but you've been so afraid, you literally couldn't make a noise. You couldn't move. You felt paralyzed. Is that what's explained? And for fear of him, this angel, the guards, Roman soldiers, trembled and became like dead men. Does it mean they're paralyzed or does it mean they've literally gone unconscious and fainted, almost like looking like dead men? And they're out. I don't know which one. Here's what we do know. I want you to understand this. I'm going to spend just a moment on it. Angels are real beings. Angels are fearful beings when mankind in the Bible sees them in a portion or a, a, a display, an expression of the glory that they have in heaven. Granted, they can come and appear like mankind. Whatever mission that they're on from the Lord will determine how fearful. But when mankind sees angels, the reaction is always the same. We're afraid. And so this group is so afraid. Roman soldiers are known for their bravery in battle. They're no, they would have taken courage by their numbers. As I said last week, Roman soldiers, and in as many of them as is needed, this is the most powerful human force on the planet at that time. And yet they know when they saw this angel, we are no match for an angel whatsoever. Can I remind you that in the Bible, one angel was sent 
throughout the land of Egypt in one night and killed all the firstborn of the Egyptians. How many are we talking about? The Bible doesn't say. I don't know the population of Egypt at that time. We're no doubt talking about millions. One angel in one night killed millions of human beings, and he's no worse for the wear. On another occasion, the Assyrian army had already won the battle against Israel, the northern tribes, and now they're going to come down and attack Judah. But God sent one angel, and that one angel in one night killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. 185,000 soldiers, one night. Again, he has, he's, he's no worse for the job. He's not worn down. They have no way to harm him. These beings are powerful. I would remind you on another occasion, when God had told David to, to number the people of Israel, and he counted them. But on another occasion, later in his life, he arrogantly counted the people again, called his census. And that was a sin for him. And God ended up judging the land of Israel because of the sin of its king. David had a choice. I won't go through the details, but you can have three years of that. You can have three months of that. Or you can have three days of this. And David says, I'll take the three days. And God sent an angel, and that angel killed 70,000 Jews in the land, in and around the city of Jerusalem. Till finally, David bought the land where the temple now, where the temple sat. And then he offered an offering to the Lord. And then God stopped the angel. Millions, 185,000, 70,000. These guys see this one angel. They're scared to death. But notice now verse 5. The angel says, okay, the Bible says, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus. Who, you see the difference? Watch. Verse 4. There's this group. They're terrified as they should be. And then there's these women are not terrified. They're, they're fearful but the angel is consoling and comforting them. The angel is making a distinction between two groups. He doesn't go comfort those guys. Hey, guys, it's okay. You don't need to fear. No, I'm going to let you fear. You need to be afraid. But he tells the women, don't be afraid. Watch. Here's what he's saying. You don't need to be afraid of me. And if you're not afraid of me, you don't need to be afraid of them. Because they're afraid of me. That's what this means. You don't need to fear them because you don't need to fear me. The angel has full control of the situation. Here's the reason they don't need to fear. The angel says, for I know that you seek Jesus. I know you've been serving the Lord with your life, and you're wanting to bring these spices and apply it to his dead body. Not going to need it. I'll tell you that in a minute. But I know your heart. I know who you are. So this angel, given information by God, knows the difference between this group and this group. Guys, listen, ladies, listen. If that was true then, you can be sure that in our day, because of Acts chapter 2, all Christians, all Christians receive the Holy Spirit. Here's what that tells me. And they're in here right now. I promise you, angels are in here right now. I have prayed that no demonic forces would be allowed on our property. That's what I've prayed, but the Lord could sovereignly allow them. If any of them are here and there are angels here, here's what I will guarantee you. Every angel here knows every person here this morning that is a true Christian. And they can see every person that is not a true Christian. Because they're in the spirit world. You are in the spirit world, but you live in the physical world. And we're dominated by our physical eyes. And so most of the time we're going through life not really in tune to the spirit world. But they live in the spirit world. And they can see literally every person. That one has the Holy Spirit. That one has the Holy Spirit. That one doesn't. And they can tell the difference. Why? Because they know. I know who you are. And we know who they are. And there is a distinction between the two. Look at verse number 6. The angel says 
He's not here, for he has risen. So he's not here as our thought. The tomb is empty. As he said, come see the place where he lay. And so the ladies go in and examine the tomb that's spoken of in the other Gospels. Speaking of, I want to hit John. Would you go to John chapter 20? Probably the only other time where we'll really focus and actually turn. Go to John chapter 20. Let's learn a piece of information here from John. And in this, I'm going to make a declarative statement, but I'm going to offer my opinion about a detail of that statement. Okay, I'm going to offer my opinion here. John chapter 20, look at verse 5. Notice verse 5. So here's the scene. The disciples, Peter and John, have been told that the tomb is empty, so they ran. John is a little faster than Peter. So John outruns Peter. John's the author. Look at verse number 5. So John gets there first, verse 5, and stooping to look in. So all they know is, what? He's gone? Here they go. And the rumors are already that he's risen. But here they come. And stooping, this is John, stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes. So the tomb is empty except for, stooping in, he saw the linen clothes lying there. But he did not go in. John apparently had some trepidation, some fear of like, I don't know if I should even go in. But over there he sees on the shelf, the rock shelf, in this rock-hewn tomb, he sees the linen clothes that had been on the Lord's body. But he doesn't go in. Verse 6, then Peter came. Simon Peter came. Well, we know about Peter. He's not, he's not, has no, he has no trepidation. He has no fear. He's just going to go right in. Peter, Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Write this thought down. John chapter 20, verses 5 through 7, shows that when these women, this is what they would have seen, and later on Peter and John, when they come to the tomb, what would they have seen? They saw the linen clothes that were on the Lord's body still lying there. Why are they still lying there? Because the Lord had passed through them. The Lord had passed through the linen clothes. And that's where I'm going to offer my opinion. So again, knowing how they wrap Jewish bodies, they didn't embalm and, and get the blood out and put embalming fluid of any kind in. They just wrapped and applied spices, and those spices would have hardened these linen strips into a hard shell. My opinion, guys, this is my opinion. I believe what they saw were linen wrappings literally in the shape of the Lord. They might have been caved in a touch because perhaps they haven't hardened fully, but what they would have saw over here is what was around the face. That's folded neatly, but separate from that is this cocoon-looking thing. I don't think that the cocoon was split, which in and of itself would have been a massive physical feat. If the Lord comes back to life, uh-oh, no problem, I'm Jesus, right? Splits, that'd been one thing, that'd been awesome. I don't think that's what happened. I don't think that there's, there's like this pile of raveled up linen clothes where somebody like, you know, I'm doing a roll of toilet paper or anything like that. Like, oh, wow. They're just plopped there in a pile. I believe they're still in the same, same shape of the Lord's body. Why? Because he passed through that. And if you think that was difficult for him, then you need to read the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the Gospels. Because that's how he, he passed through the, the, the tomb. This night, on Sunday night, he will appear in a room that has locked doors where the disciples are inside. And he does that again on another occasion. So he's in a glorified body that is physical, and yet it can just pass through things. And so he passes right on through the wrappings, and that is what is left behind. Back to Matthew 28. Let's notice number two this morning, verses 6 
and 7. Second, and this is the major fact, the first one becomes obvious because of the second one. And here's what we study. Jesus has risen from the dead. Number one, his tomb is empty. Number two, Jesus has risen from the dead. The angel says, and again, I don't, how long of a gap was... Did he, does he say it like this to the, late, to the women? He's not here for he has risen, as he said. Or does he say, I know who you seek. You seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. For he's risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. But the point being is that the Lord is not there because he has risen. The Lord has risen. If you were to say, Jeff, as you've been studying over the last few years the book of Matthew, what are the, some things that maybe surprised you? I shared this earlier. Here's one. The role of John the Baptist, that ended up surprising me. He just kept coming up over and over and over. It's like, man, this figure is a very important person. This also surprised me a few weeks ago, and it bears out in all the other Gospels. It surprised me to learn, and I, I kind of knew it but didn't really think about it. The Gospels... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like, give no details of the crucifixion. Matthew gives the most detail. He has six words. And when they had crucified him. No details about nails and, and the shape of the cross and what was first and any, any, anything like that. Just one phrase. The other gospels all give four words to it. Matthew says, and when they had crucified him. This also surprises me as we're now looking at chapter 28 that none of the four Gospels give any attention and focus on the details of exactly how Jesus rose again, of exactly when, the exact moment. All we know is that sometime in the night, when did the Lord come out? Like at what hour? We're not told. It was just some point before this angel arrives and opens the tomb, the Lord came out. We know it was on Sunday, the first day of the week. But we're not given any details. Here's what the New Testament does focus on. He's not here. Why? Why is the Lord not in the tomb anymore? Can I just be real simple? Jesus is not in the tomb because tombs are for dead people. I'm not in a tomb yet. I'm not dead yet. Tombs are for dead people. Remember that old commercial, those of you that are adults? Remember that cereal, tricks? Remember that silly rabbit? Tricks are for kids. Silly skeptic, tombs are for dead people. Right? Don't you know? Silly. Tombs are for dead people. Jesus is in the tomb. Every other founder of the world's major religions, they're all still in their tombs. All of them. Muhammad founded Islam. Guess what? Muhammad is a real man, lived in the five and six hundreds. He really lived, and he died, and he was buried. And this year, millions of Muslims will make their way to Arabia to go visit Muhammad's grave, and he's inside. Confucius, real person, lived, died, was buried. Body is still in there. Buddha lived, died, buried, still in there. Jesus came to earth from heaven as a man, lived, died, buried, rose again. He's separate than all the rest. Only Jesus has risen from the dead. And here's the key. The angel says, as he said he would. You remember? And then the women were, oh, yeah, that's right. He did say that. So write that thought. Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha, all are still in their tombs, but Jesus is not. And there's no denying, not even his enemies, dare claim that the body of Christ was still in the tomb. This is the point of today's text. 
Matthew, again, if we were, I don't have time, but if we were to just glean what Matthew alone writes, we would go back to Matthew 16, 21, and we would find that Jesus is declaring his death and resurrection on the third day. We'd go to chapter 17, verse 9. He declares his death is coming and his resurrection on the third day. Chapter 17, verse 22 and 23, the same thing. Chapter 20, verses 17 to 19, same thing. He declares his death is coming, gives more and more details each time, and he will rise again on the third day. Chapter 26, verses 30 to 30, five times in this one book, the Lord. So we know on five different occasions, Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and then I will rise again on the third day. A man named Wilbur Smith writes the following. Catch what he says. Smith writes that when Jesus, get it, let's get our minds focused. He writes that when Jesus said he would rise again from the dead, the third day after he was crucified. Did you catch those three pieces of information? He says when Jesus said he would rise again from the dead, the third day, not the first day, not the second day, not the fourth day, the third day after he was crucified, all these details have to come to pass, or Jesus is a liar. Smith writes, when he said he would rise again from the dead the third day after he was crucified, he said something only a fool would dare say if he expected any, if he expected longer the devotion of any disciples. When Jesus is going around saying, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to rise from the dead, and I'm going to do it on the third day, no one but an absolute fool would make such a comment if you want people to still... Like you and believe in you and love you after you're gone. You're going to die. Why would you make such, st such statements? That's a foolish thing to say. But Smith finishes. Unless he was sure he was going to rise. You wouldn't say this. Just, just die and rise again and come back and surprise everybody. Why would you say it in advance, all these specific things? You would only do that if you know for a certainty I will fulfill each one of those things. And no one can stop me, not even a Roman guard or a stone or a cord sealing the tomb in wax in front. And these details are important. One other thought I want to give you out of verse 6, and it's one I would have missed. Again, I'm not a, a Greek expert in any way. I, I, I don't know the Greek language. But thankfully, some people that I read do. And here's a tremendous point. Look at verse 6 carefully. The angel says he's not here for he has risen. He has risen. MacArthur points out that those two words, has risen, are actually in the passive voice. This is important. They're in the passive voice. Uh, let's refresh. You remember when we were in school we learned about active voice and passive voice. So active voice would be uh, I bit into a hamburger, right? I, I am biting a hamburger. Passive voice, so I'm doing the action. Passive voice is if a mosquito bites me. So it's happening to me in passive. The mosquito bit me. I'm minding my own business. I get bit. Or I'm biting the hamburger. Active voice, passive voice. MacArthur points out that this is actually written in the passive voice. And catch it. It can also be rendered, watch, He's not here, for he has risen. He says it can also be rendered, he's not here, for he has been raised. He's not here, for he has risen. He's not here, for he has been raised. Now watch. 
MacArthur writes the following, if you want to take this note down. Jesus himself had the power to give up his life and to take it back again. He had power to give up his life. He says this in John chapter 10, verse number, nobody can take my life. I have power to lay my life down and to take it up again. What he's saying is I can resurrect myself. I have power to die when I want, and I have power to come back alive, alive when I want. Again, MacArthur writes, Jesus himself had the power to give up his life and to take it up again. But Scripture makes clear that he also was raised by the power of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. So he concludes the entire Trinity participated in the resurrection of Jesus. So we need to learn theologically. How was Jesus raised again, raised again, raised to life? He raised himself to life. God the Father raised him to life. God the Holy Spirit raised him to life. The whole Trinity, and there's only one God, there's not three gods, but God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit all took part in the resurrection, the greatest miracle in the history of, of, of all of history, all partook in raising Christ from the dead. As you're writing that note, let me read some of those. I didn't mark it. It'll take me a second to get there. Listen to Romans chapter 6. Here's what Romans 6 verse 4 says. Listen to it. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So he's raised by the glory of the Father. Galatians chapter 1. Listen to it. Paul writes to the Galatians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. God the Father raised him from the dead. Now back to Romans chapter 8, verse number 11, we'll find the Holy Spirit. I used this, I, I read this one verse at a graveside just this past week at Miss Maggie's graveside funeral. Listen to Romans 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I want you to remember that verse as we get to the end of today's message. Number three, so we see the tomb is empty because tombs are for dead people and Jesus has risen from the dead. So that now takes us back to Matthew and we need to look at verses 8, 9, 10, the primary proof of the resurrection. What is the primary proof of the resurrection? Think about that, okay? Say the Bible says so. True, absolutely, and when the Bible says something, we'll point that out in a minute, it is true. So we know that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible says so. But there's more. Our faith, if you want to write this down, we're talking about what is the primary proof that we could say we know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Our faith, ladies and gentlemen, get it, our faith in Christ's resurrection is not primarily based on an empty tomb. Empty tomb is proof. That does prove there was a guard, and there was a stone, and there was a cord, and there was a ceiling, and he came out anyway. So that does prove a resurrection. That in and of itself is not the main proof, though. There are other tombs that had somebody in it at one time. Nobody's in there now, and that doesn't mean they were resurrected. But that is a proof, but it's not the main proof. Again, our faith in Christ's resurrection is not based on an empty tomb only, but based on his post-resurrection appearances. That's 
a stronger proof that Christ has come back to life. Empty tomb is, yes, a proof. But his post-resurrection appearances, can I add this, in the exact same body that was crucified, that proves his resurrection. Not someone that looked like him, acting like him. No, he tells his disciples, come, put your fingers in here. Put your hand in here. He offers same body. The same body that was crucified is the same body that was resurrected. That's how we know. Because he appeared to people. You say, how do we know that he appeared to people? Because we have people who said that he appeared to them. You say, well, couldn't people just somebody make that up and maybe a few people get together and concoct a lie and go out and say that, yeah, he appeared to me too. Let's go tell everybody he appeared to us and we'll fool them and make them think. No, no, no. Here's the thing. The people who said that they saw Jesus come back to life sealed their testimony with their death. They died a martyr's death for saying that they had seen Christ alive. When somebody seals their testimony with their death, that means that person knows what they're saying is absolutely true. Or at least they believe it to be 100% true. Now within our text, before I hit the next thought, I want to give you a subtle, it's a subtle thought, why we can trust the, the Gospels. Can we trust what the Gospels say about the resurrection? Can we really trust it? Uh, this is not to offend anyone here. We just want to be factual, okay? We want to be honest historically. Things have changed a lot. But we can tell that the Gospels are telling us exactly what happened. Listen, because if you were just inventing a story, you would not have women as the first people to see the empty tomb. You wouldn't have women as the first witnesses of the empty tomb. You wouldn't have women as the first witnesses of Jesus appearing to them. You wouldn't have women receiving this important message from an angel going and giving instruction and information to the male leaders. You wouldn't do that. You say, why not, you chauvinist pig? Okay. All the reason I'm saying that, you, if you were inventing this story in this culture, you wouldn't do that because a woman's testimony had no weight in that culture. Women couldn't testify in court. Times have changed. It has really changed. <laughs> anyway, moving on. It's a good thing. Some change has been good. Great. Oh, boy. Why am I even? No. Edit, edit those last 15 seconds. Praise the Lord, there's change. Women have much to offer, and we're going to see they have a story to tell. Praise the Lord for that. But so do men. Men do too. You ever feel like things have changed too much? Anyway, oh, oh, ah, got to stop. Yeah. Oh, you, you guys, nothing. Anyway, moving on. Edit the last 30 seconds quickly. Now moving on. All right. You wouldn't invent that version. You'd have like the leading, most reliable, most reputable people discover the tomb and be approached first by Christ. That's how you would do it. You wouldn't choose women. But that's what I like about the Bible. Sidebar. The Bible reports things as they really are. Not how we would do it, not how we expect it to be done. The Bible reports things as it really happened, not how we, we would have done it. And that's why you can trust the Bible. When it says something, it is being truthful with us because it's doing things that we wouldn't do it that way. Now, I want you to focus just for a moment because I'm going to make a couple of points. We're going to come down the home stretch of today's message. Look at verse 7, 8, 
quickly, combine them together, and then we're going to bring in. Look at verse 7. There's this command from the angel. It says, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So the angel gives this command to these women. Go do this, this action. I love verse 8. It doesn't need preached other than to say, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Everybody see that? Hey, the angel, the messenger of God says, Women, go do this. Off they go and do it. It is super simple. Say, so Jeff, what's the point? In verse 9, Jesus met them. They're given instructions. They go do it. Jesus meets them. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm buffering the note because I want to be clear. God is sovereign. God does whatever he wants how he wants, when he wants. We don't put him in a little box. So this note does not put the Lord in a box. When God wants to reveal himself to a person, he just does it. Saul of Tarsus was on a very sinful, evil, malicious errand going from Jerusalem up to Damascus to kill and imprison more Christians. He's going to, to, to persecute more Christians. And on the way, God reveals himself. Jesus overwhelms Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, and he ends up seeing Christ. So God can do whatever he wants, anytime he wants, with whom he wants. But I want to learn a lesson from these ladies. Write this thought. As a pattern, not as a fixed final rule, but as a general rule, as a pattern, those who have personal encounters with God most frequently are those people who obey His commands. That's a simple thought. That's what I learned out of verse 8 and 9. These ladies are told to go do something. They start doing it, and then they encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear it again. The people who most frequently have genuine, personal God encounters are the people who just simply obey God's commands. It's, it's, it's like this, guys. It's along the road of obedience that we, in, we have these personal God encounters. That's where it'll happen. God can do otherwise. And he has. Sometimes in his mercy, when we're not living obediently, the Lord will come reveal himself and maybe has to get our attention in ways we don't like. But more times than not, people who frequently have what I call God encounters, personal, like really, I'm sensing God, God, I'm sensing you. Who is that? It's the people that obey His commands. The Bible commands His people to study His Word. That's a command. I think people that study the Word of God for themselves, those are more likely to have God encounters. The Bible commands us to worship God and to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. People who worship God have God encounters more frequently than those who disobey. The Bible says we are to pray. Those who obey God's command to pray, to me, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, real prayer is a true God encounter every time. When we obey the command of, of God to pray, then we're going to have a God encounter. It's as we're studying the Word of God. It is as we're praying. It is as we're worshiping. The Bible says to be faithful. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. 
And I believe that as you faithfully obey the Lord, you go to a church where, where praising of God is taking place and the teaching and preaching of God's Word is taking place, you're more likely to have true, genuine, personal God encounters. Now, if that's not important to you, then just don't read your Bible, don't pray, don't worship, don't come to church. And then wonder why I don't even, my, my faith is weak. But if you'll do these things and serve the Lord, use your spiritual gifts to serve the Lord, then it's along the road of obedience that you have frequent God encounters, and always that's by His grace. Now look at verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. The primary proof of Jesus' resurrection is His post-resurrection appearances. And there are many. A while ago in my office, I didn't write them down, and I'm not going to remember them all. I thought of at least 12 times over 40 days. Really, I need to add a few years later on the one. But it, no, 13. I thought of, off the cuff, at least 13 times that the Lord revealed himself after his resurrection to people. Hang with me. This is important. He reveals himself to Mary Magdalene, then to these women. Here, again, looking at all the Gospels. Mary Magdalene, the women... Peter, James, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the disciples as a group this night in a locked room, but Thomas isn't there. On another occasion, the disciples again, and Thomas is there. Then 500 believers, 500 brothers in Christ at one time, not even counting women and children apparently, 500 at one time up in Galilee, down near the Sea of Galilee as they were fishing, then up on a mountain in Galilee, I'm forgetting something, then back down in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1, and then old Paul in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. So here's the point. 12 or 13 times that are recorded over a period of 40 days, the Lord reveals himself alive after his resurrection. But Matthew only pulls in two of them. None of, nobody covers all of them. Even Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 doesn't mention the women. He jumps straight to these others. He's the one who says 501. Now, why is Matthew using these two? Well, look at it with your eyes. I think you'll find something in common. Look at verse 9 and let your eyes glance forward to verse 10. Boy, if this was a Wednesday night, we'd make this a two-minute assignment. But we don't. We're not able to. Look at verse 9 and 10 and then look down at verse 17 and 19. Do you see how they have something in common? It's important. Look at verse 9. And 10, and then in your Bibles, look at verse 17 and 19. Do you find some similarities in the text? Verse number 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. You see that? They worshipped him. Look at verse 17 in your Bible. This is the disciples up in Galilee. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. They saw him. So there's an appearance. They worshipped him. Now look back at verse 10. The women fell at his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Watch. Go and tell my brothers. Worshipped him. Then they're giving instruction. Go and tell. Now look at verse number 19. The disciples up in Galilee worshipped him. But verse 19, the Lord says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching. You see the same thing? You see these two elements? Matthew, why are you choosing these two, two appearances out of the at least 13 to choose from? You already got it, right? 
Got it? As Matthew is concluding his book of 28 chapters, here's what he's saying. Where we started with his genealogy and his birth, and we went to his early life a little bit, and then the temptation, the baptism with John, and then he launches his ministry, and all this teaching, and all this preaching, and all these miracles, and all these prophecies, and then he's he surrenders in the garden, and then he's arrested, and then he's killed, and then he's resurrected. Here's the point. The proper response to the death and resurrection of the Lord is mainly twofold. Check your heart. Here's the, here's the response. Have you worshipped him because of his death for you and his resurrection? Have you worshipped him? And then once you have worshipped him, you are to go and tell people about him, about what you know about Christ. That's the twofold response Matthew wants us to get across. He concludes his gospel by saying... The proper response to the death and resurrection of Christ is to worship him. Do you worship him? Then go and tell people about him. Do you tell people about Christ? These women, these, this group of women, they were awesome. They had been serving the Lord faithfully and giving of their, their money and resources and their hands and Taking care of the disciples, no doubt cooking meals and tending to the body of Christ. Here they are again, going to anoint the body of Christ with spices. But they never fulfilled their creative purpose any more than they did in verses 9 and 10 when they worshipped the Lord. And then went and told what they know because the disciples didn't know that Christ was alive. We're made. Can I ask you a quick question? Do you worship the Lord because of his death and resurrection? You, can you honestly in your heart say, I worship Jesus? If you can say yes, can you say, I tell people. I tell people about Jesus. Or are you here this morning and say, Brother Jeff, I tell people about Jesus. I don't worship him very much, but I tell people. Or do you say, I love worshiping the Lord, but I'm shy, so I don't really talk about him. The one happens first. Worship him first, and then go tell others. And that'll be coming in three or four weeks. Notice verse 10. I want you to catch one word. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Go tell my brothers because there they'll see me. They're going to see me. They're going to see me. Hey guys, listen. That the disciples of the Lord see Christ after the resurrection was vital. It was crucial. That's the plan of God. He's going to use these men to expand Christianity around the world. We are still gleaning and being inspired and being challenged and trusting in their writings. Matthew saw the resurrected Lord. John saw the resurrected Lord. Peter saw the resurrected Lord. Paul saw the resurrected Lord, though later than them. These men sealed this. John, not with his death, but with great persecution. The other three men died saying that they knew that they had encountered Christ after his resurrection. Oh, he's alive. This was crucial. William Lane Craig writes the following. He says, without the belief in the resurrection, the Christian faith could not have come into being. Why? The disciples would have remained crushed and defeated men. Even had they continued to remember Jesus as their beloved teacher, and surely they would, his crucifixion would have forever silenced any hopes of him being the Messiah. The cross would have remained the sad and shameful end of his career. This is what would have dominated their mind had it not been for the resurrection. But Craig writes the following. The origin of Christianity therefore hinges on the belief 
of the disciples that God had indeed raised Jesus from the dead. These guys have to be 100% convinced. And the Lord made sure they are Come, put your hand here. Give me a piece of fish. Give me some bread. I'll prove to you I'm not a ghost. I am the same Lord and Savior raised to life. And they were convinced. So why is the resurrection important? I was going to make that a fourth point, but I'm not. I did it on your handout. I didn't have room, so I just did it verbally. Here we go. Why is that important? If you're taking notes, these are going to come quickly. Write this. The resurrection of Christ is important because without, now think first. I want you to hear it first and then write it quickly. Take away the resurrection. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then what do we have? Here's what we have. Jesus is a historical figure. But he's a liar. That's what that would mean. Take away the resurrection. Jesus is a liar. According to Paul, take away the resurrection. Our faith, which I had at nine years old. I started trusting Christ at nine years old. But if there's no resurrection, your faith and my faith is vain and empty. It's done nothing for us. If our faith is empty and vain and Christ has not been raised and he's a liar, then here's what that means. All of us are still in our sins. We're still under the weight of our sins. All the blood of animals and, and bulls and goats and lambs and rams, pigeons and turtle doves, those can never take away our sins. They were always pointing to something greater. They were only symbolic. But if Christ is not raised, then our sins are still upon us and we have no hope of salvation whatsoever. We have no chance to be saved if there was no resurrection. But Jesus was raised from the dead. So what does that mean? He's not a liar. Our faith is the most valuable attribute of a person. A person's faith in Christ. The most valuable thing they can have. We are not under our sins. We have great expectation of eternal life. In fact, what's the importance of the resurrection? Guys, it was so important and so vital to the early church. By the way, just look back at verse 1. I want to show you this. Verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Guys, the resurrection is so certain and so convincing to the, to the early church that its leadership made a major bold move that I'm telling you they never would have done. They never would have done this if they weren't 100% convinced that it happened and that it was worthy to have this response. You know where I'm going. Write this thought down. Because of Jesus' resurrection, the early church, early Christians in the early church, moved their corporate worship like we're doing this morning from Saturday, the Sabbath day, they moved it from that as commanded in the Old Testament. They moved it over to Sunday on the first day of the week. They would never do that if they didn't know for 100% surety that Jesus has been raised from the dead. They think that is the honoring thing to do and God blessed it. So Sunday became what is called the Lord's Day. Let me remind you, it's the Lord's Day. That's a biblical term. It's not your day. It's not the NFL's day. It's the Lord's day. That's when the early church met. That's when the church today. This is why we meet on Sunday. In essence, we're celebrating the Lord's resurrection, not just on Easter. Every time we meet on Sunday instead of Saturday, we are celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Did I put references in there for you guys there? Did I put down Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and Revelation 1, 10? No, I didn't. I just said them verbally. Those of you that are really good at writing things, you can write that down. It's Acts 20, verse 7. Paul meets, I think it's with 
outside the Ephesian church area when they met on the first day of the week. Now, you think I preach long. Paul preached till midnight. Seriously, seriously. Kid fell out of the third floor. He fell asleep in the in third floor window, fell and died. And then Paul was used to bring him back to life. So he preached a long, long time. But in his defense, they probably did not have their services in the morning like we do. It was a work day for them. Now we've invented this thing called the weekend where we couple Saturday with the first day of the week. Um, all because of church. <sighs> ain't got time to talk about the, the, the Texas school board. Ain't got to talk, time to talk about them where they're wanting to take out um, out of the social studies the phrases um, in the year of our Lord and before Christ. They won't take that out and they don't want to treat Moses as a historical figure. I ain't got time to talk about them. Uh, but anyway, we do these things now because of the truth of the New Testament. The other was 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2. Paul tells the Corinthians, when you gather on the first day of the week, I want this offering to be taken for the poor people that are in Jerusalem. The other is Revelation chapter 1 verse number 10 where John is on the Isle of Patmos and he receives uh, the, this vision of Christ on the Lord's day. Now, Let's finish up here quickly on these three last thoughts. The resurrection proves many, many, many things, but I'm going to finish with just three. We're going to narrow it down to three. What does this prove? What does this prove? So much, but let's hit three. Number one. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves, number one, it proves it that Jesus is both God and man. Jesus is both God and there's no doubt about it. Jesus is God and man. How do we know? We know that Jesus is a man because he died. We know that Jesus is God because he came back to life. Listen, we know he's a man because in verse number 9, when these women stoop down at his feet, they end up taking hold of his feet. They don't whiff and like, whoa, what's this? Nah, I'm not really here. This is a hallucination. I'm a ghost. No, they take hold of his feet while he's a man. But what they do while they're at his feet proves he's God. Listen carefully. Back in Matthew 4, Jesus had a showdown with Satan. Satan wants Jesus to bow down and worship him. Jesus says that only God, the Lord, is to be worshipped. Now hear his theology. Jesus' theology is only God is to be worshipped. So the New Testament makes real clear Jesus is a good man. He's a good man and an honest man. But if Jesus is only a good, honest man and not God in the flesh, and he allows these women in verse 9 and his disciples in verse 17 to bow at his feet and worship him, and he doesn't stop it, if he's not God and doesn't stop it, then he's not a good, honest man. He's an imposter. Peter, in Acts chapter 10, is worshipped by this man, Cornelius. Peter says, get up, don't do that, I'm just like you. Acts chapter 13, Paul heals a man of his lameness. This whole town comes out to worship him and Barnabas, and Paul will have none of it. I'm, we are men of, with a nature like you. Stop it. Don't worship us. These women and these, these men in verse 17 bow down at the feet of Jesus, take hold of him, and they begin to worship, and Jesus just freely receives it. Proving he's the Lord of life. He's the Lord of all creation. He's the Lord over death. Number two, the resurrection of Christ proves this is an important one. It proves, like that one wasn't, that one was important too. But they're all important. All three of these, these are like the most important ones I could narrow down to these three. 
What does the resurrection prove? It proves that God, the Father, accepted Jesus' death on the cross as sufficient to pay for all of our sins. I didn't have time to put all that phrase on. I didn't have room to put the whole phrase. So you're going to have to fill in sufficient for our sins. It's a sufficient payment for our sins. That's what the resurrection proves. Guys, look. God was watching everything. He knows what Jesus was implying and what Jesus was saying. He knows what people were saying about Jesus, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. He's heard the whole thing. If Jesus were an imposter, then you got to believe that when Jesus died, God the Father was going to hold him in death. But God raised him from the dead. Why? Proving that is my son. His death on the cross was sufficient for all of your sins. You don't have to pay any of it. Along with that thought is this thought that comes under it. What the resurrection proves is that Jesus' resurrection now guarantees. That's what we read in Romans 8, 11. Because the spirit that, that is in us raised him from the dead. That same spirit will also raise us from the dead. So his resurrection guarantees the resurrection of everyone who ever puts their faith and trust in Christ. Why? Because Jesus, by rising from the dead, killed death. What died that day? Jesus died on the cross on Friday. He came back to, to life on Sunday. And in so doing, Christ killed death for believers. Death promises to separate us from everything that is good. Jesus has now killed death for those who put their faith and trust in him. And now rather than separating us, Jesus uses death to bring us to himself and everything that is better. Oh no, death's coming. Everything good is about to end. No, no, no. Everything that is better is about to begin. Jesus has turned that whole thing around. We need to have that set. I'm just going to say it. It's true of me and it's true of you. Death is not as bad as you still think it is. You still, have, and I do too, and when it comes, we're going to be probably a little nervous. I can name some names of good pastor friends who had near-death experiences, and I heard them say, Jeff, it's kind of scary. But I know this. When we get on the other side, we're going to get back through that door of death, and we're going to go, that was nothing. That was nothing. Yeah, Christ took the sting out. And then lastly, here's what his resurrection proves. The resurrection of Christ proves that everything Jesus ever said was true. Everything he ever said. It's all true. If a man says, now watch, I'm going to Jerusalem. When I get there, I will be betrayed by one of you. It's this trip. He's made, everybody with me? Watch. This trip, on this trip to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed by one of you. I'll be handed over to the Jewish leaders. And then they will hand me over to the Gentiles. All these details. They will scourge me. He predicts that. They will crucify me. I will die. I will be buried. And I will rise again. The third day. Anybody who calls all of those things, and it actually happens on the, in Jerusalem, betrayed one of the twelve to the Jews, who gives him over to the Gentiles, who scourge him and then crucify him, and he comes back to life, but he does it on the third day. Somebody goes nine out of nine, then you can mark it down. Everything that person ever says, it's all true. Amen. It's all true. You, you can just, 
And so what that means is everything Jesus says has to be received as true. Everything Jesus ever said has to be trusted as true. Do you do that? And so now I want to take a couple hours and go through what Jesus has said. Right? So, Miss <laughs> just brought. No, I'm kidding. Will you look at three verses? Just three? John chapter, listen, everything he ever said is true. Take it to the bank. John chapter 3, look at verse 16. Do we have that on the screen? Watch this. John 3, do we have that? Oh, there it is. Receive that as true. Everything he ever said is true. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Can we have John chapter 5, verse 24? Watch John 5. Look at it. John 5, verse 24. It says John 4, 24. It is 5, 24. Watch. Jesus says this. True, he's talking to you. Hear this as to you. As you're reading this, say, I am going to receive this as true, and I'm going to rest and rely on this as true. Anybody that goes nine for nine on that, I'm believing. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever... Here's my word. Wait a minute. I'm actually reading Jesus' word right now. Right. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Has it right now. Eternal. Yeah, you mean like till I sin really bad. No. Eternal life. He does not come into judgment. Can't come into judgment because everything Jesus says is true. Jesus says he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Watch that phrasing. We're going to pass. Here's death. We're going to pass when we believe, hear his words, and believe God the Father. We're going to pass from death, separation from God, over to life, which is being with God. Happens instantaneously. You don't even see it physically. Why is this from death to life? Because you're born separated from God. You're born in death, but the moment you hear the words of Christ as believable, and your heart acts like God is telling the truth, and you put your faith in what God says about His Son, you are immediately moved from death to life, and it's an eternal kind of life. Jesus can't lie. He can't lie. And if that wasn't enough, the third and last one is John 14, verse 6. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, Receive it as true. Make up your mind. Somebody goes nine out of nine out of those things, saying it weeks and months in advance. I'm going to believe everything they say. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one. Oh, Jeff, I'm an exception. I've messed up, but I'm better than most people. I know. No, no, no. No one comes to the Father, and the Father is in heaven, so this represents goes to heaven. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you doing some good things. Wait, wait, wait a second. Oh, it doesn't, doesn't say that last phrase. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one, no exceptions, no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, Jesus says, I'll do all the saving. You want to go to the Father, you want to live in heaven, you will do it through me. If you try any other way, you will not make it to heaven. Jesus says, he's the way. Jesus, everything he says is true. Jesus says over and over, judgment's coming. Grace for you. 
Those of you watching online, judgment's coming. Judgment is coming. And those frightening angels will be used to gather people. But for believers, those angels are going to be a welcomed sight. For unbelievers, they will be terrified, only to be far more terrified when the judgment comes. What Christ is saying, I'm telling you in advance, and everything I say is true. Judgment's coming. But God sent me, if you'll believe in me, you will not perish, you'll have everlasting life. God sent me, Jesus is saying, so if you'll hear my words. Some people are in places of the world, they never hear the word of Christ. You have heard it. If you'll hear my words, and that makes you believe in God the Father who sent him, then you'll never face judgment. You'll be passed from death to life because I'm the only way to the Father. There is no other way. Will you come to the Father through me? If you make it to heaven, it is only through Christ, not through Christ and you in the back of your mind thinking, I'm going to help him out and I'm going to be a good person. Surely those two things will get me to heaven. No, no, no. It is only through Christ. Heads bowed, eyes closed just for a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed. One of my favorite definitions of faith Actually, it is my favorite definition of faith. Faith is acting like God is telling the truth. Faith is not just hearing the Bible and kind of in your head. I know the information. <clears throat> Excuse me. Faith is not just being informed and I can repeat it. Please check your soul. Check your heart. Faith is knowing the promises of God and acting like he's telling the truth. So based on that, Jesus says, who is God? Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus says, if we'll hear his words and believe God who sent him, then we have eternal life. Jesus says he is the way. There is no other way except through him. So I'm asking you this morning, have you totally put your faith and trust? Have you received the words of Christ as 100% true? And are you relying and resting in and trusting his words? The resurrection proves everything Jesus ever said is true. It proves he is God and man. And it proves that God the Father accepted his sacrifice on the cross. It is enough for your sins. You dare not add to what Christ has already done. So let's just before I pray, would you just double check your heart, your heart of hearts. Can you honestly say, not even to me. Between you and God, can you honestly say, Father, thank you. I am 100, I am 100% sure that when I die, I will go to heaven. I know this because I am trusting your promises and the promise of Christ. I am trusting that, and he can't lie. Can you, in your heart of hearts, truthfully say there was a time in your life where you confessed your sins to God? And received his free forgiveness based on the promises of Jesus' words. Can you honestly say, have you had a time in your life, not even about a perfectly worded prayer, just where you can honestly say, I have gone face to face with God. I have confessed my sins to him and I have told him, God, I believe what you say about me. 
I am a sinner, and I believe what you say about Jesus. His death was enough to pay for my sins. As great as they were, his death is even greater. I am trusting that, and I'm 100% sure. Can you honestly say that? If not, why don't you right now just trust him? Just do it. Let him know, God, I am a sinner. God, I have sinned. I've broken your laws. Don't you just do that right now. To him, not to me. God, I have broken your laws, but I have heard the words of Christ today. And I believe that in my heart, he has risen from the dead, proving that you accepted his death for me. And so, God, you're giving away salvation for free. Why don't you just tell God, Lord, since you're giving it for free, then I am taking it right now for free. I receive eternal life. And then just rest in the Lord. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, thank you for the resurrection of Christ. We come to you in his name. Father, we thank you that we've learned this morning Jesus is alive. Lord, I pray that our people here will be on the road of obedience and just throughout the week that we would have true, genuine God encounters with you as we're studying and praying and worshiping and attending together, praising you, preaching and teaching through your word. Lord, I pray that we would regularly experience your presence in our life personally. Father, I'm going to ask just before we close, would you make our church such a loving church, so in love with Jesus, your son, that we worship him regularly, individually, corporately. God, would you make us worshipers in our spirit, combined with your Holy Spirit, celebrating the truth that stirs our heart. God, would you Cause us to be worshipers in spirit and truth. And then, Lord, would you cause us to be people that just spontaneously and out of obedience, we are out just talking about you as we come across people in our sphere of awareness. Lord, would you cause us to be speaking, going, and telling others what we have found to be true about you. And then, Lord, would you use us to draw people to Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.